In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Cutting, eating disorders, suicide. These are difficult topics to discuss, but we need to address the role society plays to exacerbate these issues. Isolation, social media, pornography, and an entertainment industry that rewards image are all major contributors. These exist in our world, and we need solutions to protect our current and future generations of adolescents, especially teenage girls. On today's podcast, we ask the question, what the hell are we doing to teenage girls? Good morning, Roger. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. Welcome to the Dangerously Naive Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Uh, For those of you um, who have listened to previous episodes, I want to remind you, we do have an email address, radgenpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to those people who have already engaged with us and are advocates for my personal safety and the way that I'm treated in this room. We do read everything. We're listening. <laughs> you poor, poor, sad soul. No, he's he's uh, building his brand as the victim. Yeah, so. I know. I am not a victim. I am well liked. <laughs> you are dangerously naive. <laughs> um, I think, Roger, in a previous podcast, you were talking about uh, the way that I treat uh, my son as, as a porcelain doll, you know, and we went out and uh, we, if you, uh, in many of the major cities, there's this uh, Van Gogh exhibit, which was, uh, is a really cool experience. So we decided to take him to it. And um, so we, you know, we wrapped him in, in bubble tape and uh, we, we drove slowly to the exhibit. And once we got the hula hoop that, around is him. It, is so that people, that virtual reality? It is. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was really cool because just watching him in that room, um, it, it is an immersive experience. And uh, just all the colors that were around him, it was, he was chasing things on the ground. It was really, really a fun event. I must um, have been hard in bubble wrap. <laughs> well, the noise was distracting for the rest of the people there, the constant popping. But uh, as I had always been concerned about, you know, growing up in this in this time with everything that's going on, it's really it's strange. You know, a child seeing people in masks all the time. You know, what effect is it going to have on their development? Uh, how comfortable they are to to read people's face expressions, uh, things of that. And uh, in the news, just uh, in the last two weeks. Uh, there was that declaration of a national emergency in child and adolescent mental health, which I think uh, is it's it's showing of what's happening um, going on in the world right now. And I think it was the um, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychology, Psychiatry, and Children's Hospital Association acknowledging that there's a, there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, I have college essays and things like that going on right now Mm -hmm. so uh this is probably the first year that i would say well over half of the essays subject content dealt with dealt with things like depression anxiety and even going further and uh i i I normally would say you know oh 
that's okay. But I, it, it to me, the increase in this, particularly with girls mm-hmm. on their essays, was crazy. Um, so we're going to get into some sobering statistics. Yeah, that, that's kind of leading into the next thing. Because the other thing that was in the news in just the last month was um, Facebook and their uh, internal uh, investigation and research, uh, knowing uh, how toxic it is for teen girls um, and, and whether or not they're choosing to take any adjustments in, in the way that they're doing things to, um, to alleviate that. And I, I think this is a good segue into the topic Roger shared with us last night of something mm-hmm. he wants to discuss. So, Roger, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I mentioned that there are some sobering statistics out there. And in this podcast, we're going to have to kind of face what society and culture, the way that we're transforming as a society, has the impact on the individual, family, and group level. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been an upward trend since 2006, 2007, of an increase in life-threatening behaviors related to mental health issues in children and teens. It's unprecedented. So it's something that we can't really compare to any other time in human history. And what I mean by that are uh, attempts on one's life because of the emotional distress and pain that they're in, as well as what's called non-suicidal self-injury, which is deliberately creating pain or harm on oneself to regulate emotions. And what stands out is this disproportionately affects girls. And here we are, we're three guys talking about um, Mm -hmm. female mental health. So for all our listening audience, we're aware of the fact that this is males discussing female mental health. We're not obtuse. I don't want to get comments on social media about the patriarchy and things of that nature. Mm. We believe that we have a right and we have some level of opinion and expertise to discuss this critical issue. First, as a clinical psychologist, what ends up working primarily with females due to my areas of expertise, which are, tend to be in eating disorders, severe emotion dysregulation, mm-hmm. chronic suicide, suicidality, self-injury, and so forth. But we also know that females are more than twice as likely to come in and seek mental health mm-hmm. treatment. So we're going to come from a perspective, a human perspective, yeah. one, but Kelly, you're a teacher. You're a father of a daughter. I've got two daughters myself, right? So like, we're going to have this discussion not only from a, clit- a, a critical lens and a clinical lens, but also a human one, and talk about how we as parents and as uncles or cousins or brothers, as males can understand what's going on, but to be critical of society and culture because it's a societal problem. It's a cultural problem. And those factors that lead to it, we have to analyze today, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I think that's the challenge that is in front of us. Put on your critical lens and speak genuinely, radically genuinely on this on these topics. So let's hear some sobering statistics. Hey, just one sec. Kelly, how old is your daughter? Uh, she's nine. Nine, okay. And then yours, Roger, are, are later teens. Um, I have a 20-year-old daughter yeah. who's a uh, junior in college, mm-hmm. and I have a 17-year-old daughter. Okay. Okay. Um, so emer- emergency rooms for suspected suicide attempts between girls the ages of 12 and 17 increased 26% during the summer of 2020 and a whopping 50% during the winter of 2021. That's crazy. Compared to that same period of 2019. 
Now, I don't have the statistics in front of me about 2019, but here's what you should know. Um, statistics have been increasing or the, the prevalence rate has been increasing every single year since the mid 2000s. So we have been in a mental health crisis before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It has exacerbated it. Yeah. Right. So we're not going to blame this just on lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Right. Obviously that intensified it. It exasperated the problem, but it was brewing. We saw it in our schools. I saw it in my practice. We see it in our communities. Okay. Here's some more sobering statistics just for young people, right? Suicide is now the second leading cause of death of people aged 10 to 34 in the United States. Oh, like overall, overall. Like both, okay. Yep. But again, we're seeing at more than double the rate for females. Right. Um, and it's not just about uh, desire to end life. It's not just about depression. Like we are now seeing that, 5.2% of all girls are going to meet criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder at one time. Wow. And those are very stringent like criteria to, to be able to meet, to get that diagnosis. So when you just add in what is called a nonspecific eating disorder, which is the overwhelming majority, 13% of all girls will have an eating disorder by the age of 20. 13%. 13%. That's great. That is incredible. And now you think about a nine-year-old. Now I'm petrified, actually, to be quite blunt. You of, should be, Kelly. Yeah. Do you, I, know, do you know that that young girls will begin to experience an awareness of their own body by the age of six? Wow. Right. Now, that is not, that's not innate. That's not biological. That in itself is through exposure to popular culture and modern society. Social media, being on uh, devices. No, or, we saw that before wow. the rise of really? social media. Marketing, right? advertising, mm -hmm. um, sports illustrated, uh, swimsuit issues, all that stuff. And, and modeling. Modeling. By a, by a parent. Mm. You know? Oh, yeah. So here's a 2019. So this is pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what the statistics are on this right now. But based on pharmacy claims, for those who filled at least one prescription for a mental health medication in 2019, nearly twice as many teenage girls take antidepressants compared to teenage boys. Hmm. And we're talking about over 10, this is in 2019. And we know there has been an astronomical increase in turning to antidepressant medications. Yeah, we touched on that in an earlier podcast. I think it was the Wall Street Wall Street Journal had some data on um, the amount of prescriptions that were uh, used at, at pharmacies for antidepressants, and it was up significantly during the period of, of March 2020 through the time period that we referenced it. Mm. Yeah, so let's look from 2015 to 2019. Teenage girls, and we're talking about teenagers, the increase in antidepressant medication started at 7.3% in 2015 to 10.2% in 2019. And I've seen somewhere close to like 20% of, of teenage girls maybe taking some form of uh, a psychiatric drug. Now, over that same period of time, boys, 4.2% to 5.2%. 3%. So it's double, more than double. 
So I don't want to play like devil's advocate. That's probably not the right way to phrase this right now. But um, some people may look at that and say it's uh, it's more awareness of mental health and more people getting access to the care they may need based on just the fact that they may be getting a prescription for something. Yeah. And, and if you, if you go back and listen to our previous podcast, it's not the care that they need. Yeah. Right. 40 upwards of 45 studies done on antidepressants for uh, children and adolescents. So I mean, no it, response. So, so your point is that a prescription is not a solution. Evidence-based care would be the best way of um, overcoming whatever a child might be suffering with. No, I think it's much more complicated than that. So okay. first, no, turning to antidepressants does not solve the problem. Yes. Right. So they're not effective. Mm-hmm. They're not safe. Right. And we're very clear on this podcast. Do not give children and adolescents antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Don't. The research doesn't support it. We talked about it. I'm not going to revisit it. So yeah. that is not right. that is not taking care of your mental health. Yeah. The question that we have to ask ourselves are why are we having this rate of suffering in in a first world society, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to look at our culture. Why are so many young girls struggling? What is happening within our society, within our families, within our education system? that so many girls are struggling with anxiety and depression to the extent that they don't want to live anymore. Dude, I see it every day on the front lines. I see this every day at a small district, small high school. I see these girls walking down the hall and I can just, you sense it. You see that they're struggling with um, the way they look, the way they're perceived. Um, many of them are you know, when they, when they open up a little bit, they're, they're talking about feeling depressed, the feeling of depression, um, sad. So I'm very intrigued by how we're going to sit there and, and on this podcast, um, what do we do? What do we do? How can we help? How can I help as an educator? How, how does the system help? And what the, what the hell is causing this? What's the root cause? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's where we have to go. I'm not done with statistics. Oh, geez. Right? And I don't want to be this math guy or stat guy, but, you know, data doesn't lie. So I don't want any of our listening audience to kind of deny or minimize the problem mm-hmm. um, and say, well, you know, this doesn't affect me or this doesn't affect anyone in my family or whatever reason, maybe thinking that we're magnifying an issue that doesn't really exist. I don't know. I, I, I think many of us have been uh, affected in some way or another by someone we know, someone we care about who may have uh, suffered from an eating disorder. Uh, I know that some girls that I dated in the past, um, some friends, uh, sisters, things like that, it, it exists. It, it is prevalent. It's probably been swept under the rug in the past, but now maybe we're drawing more attention to it to solve the problem. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've seen in, in this practice is a rise of what's called non-suicidal self-injury. Non-suicidal self-injury is the deliberate self-harm done to the body. It's most frequently happening in, um, in a form of what's called cutting. Mm-hmm. So it is actually um, taking a razor blade of some sort to, to your skin um, multiple times, breaking the skin to bleed. And what happens there is that there are chemicals that are, are released in your brain in response to that pain. And it's used as a distress tolerance emotion regulation strategy. So someone is feeling such internal pain that they have to 
hurt themselves in order to feel better. And even if that feeling better lasts five seconds, 10 seconds, it's like a 10 second escape from the pain. There could be other functions to it as well. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a, a strong belief that they deserve to be punished that they're not good, they're that, that they're bad, and there's a relief, a feeling of relief that happens when they harm themselves. So there was, in 2015, and geez, we're talking, you know, that's now six years ago, mm-hmm. and it's just grown since 2015. They did a, um, a population study among adolescents, and at that time, 17.6% of teens engaged in f- some form of non-suicidal self-injury in the previous year. And um, the difference between females to males was 14.8% females compared to 6.4% males. So again, more than twice as much. So this is, this is a gender issue. This is a sex difference, a gender difference. Mm-hmm. Is, is it always going to be in the form of things like cutting or self-harm? Is that, is that just, is that the predominant way that uh, an individual will do that? Cutting and burning okay. are the two most frequent. What about hair pulling? That's, a, that's not considered non-suicidal self-injury. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are conditions mm-hmm. where people pull their hair out, trichotillomania. Okay. Um, which seems to have a, a, a similar function of emotion regulation and it be, can become habitual, but it's not considered non-suicidal self-injury. Okay. We consider non-suicidal self-injury to be life-threatening because those who engage in it, it then becomes a, sig- a significant increase in the likelihood to, um, to enter into some suicidal okay. like, behavior to or Take act. it one step further. Yeah, so it, like, it increases. Mm-hmm. Whether it's some desensitization process or something about hurting yourself to, as a way of trying to feel better or some escape mechanism, what we see is just increases your risk. It's a risk factor for later suicide attempts. Got it. Okay. Um, and this is, so that was a stat from 2015. 2020 compared to 2019, about 100% increase in medical claims and reports for self-injury between the ages of 13 and 18. Jesus. Yeah, it is um, what we're seeing on the front lines. And I'm coming from the front lines, right? And we've we've talked about this. First of all, we we have a waiting list we'll never get to, right? So many Sadly, yeah. Sadly, many of the people trying to seek out treatment aren't going to be able to get care. So what are they going? They're getting turned to the to primary care mm-hmm. and they're getting turned to doctors and they're looking for some form of relief and parents don't know what to do. So there's just that many people that are calling here and mm-hmm. saying that, or is it an insurance thing? Is it, I mean, how does... There's not enough providers. There's just not enough. Not enough providers. Too many people suffering, too many people struggling, not enough providers, right? We don't even have to get into providers who are capable of and, and trained to be able to provide this form of treatment. That's even more limited. So what does this drive everyone to? It's, it's psychiatric drugs, which are largely ineffective, make the problem much, much worse. Um, one final statistic, because we cannot talk about women's health issues or the health of teenage girls without understanding the role of sexual violence and sexual assault, not just on women, but on teenage girls. Because do you know that females ages 16 to 19 are four times more likely 
than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape or sexual assault? Four times. Yeah, four times. More sobering statistics about society and culture. One in nine girls under the age of 18 will experience sexual abuse or assault at the hands of an adult. Right? And that's not even talking about what a teenage girl will be exposed to with other teenage boys. Compare that, you know, we're talking about gender differences. One in nine girls compared to one in 53 boys. So you can't begin to talk about the crisis in, in, in teenage girls' mental health without being able to look at what they're exposed to, a developing body in a hypersexualized culture. And we're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. In, let's get into it now um, because that stands out as a, as a major difference for me in the past 15 years is the hypersexualization of an adolescent period from what they're exposed to, which they didn't have the ability to in previous generations. The porn industry is, is one. We, one of the things we see in clinical practice that I did not see 10 years ago is the frequency of sending out nude photos. And it was an infrequent event a decade ago with a lot of shame attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one girl sends a nude photo to a boyfriend who asked for it. And God forbid that boyfriend shares it with their friends. That ruins the reputation. Obviously, if you want to think about factors that would contribute to wanting to end your life, that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, it's a high-frequency event that's become desensitized and almost normalized. So if we're talking about female health and teenage mental health, we have to be able to examine hypersexuality, our culture and its impact. Okay. So that's, that's one thing we got to get into today. Um, The other thing I have in here, obviously it's the rise of, of social media and its impact on, on teenage girls. And we're in a we're in a unique period of time for whatever reason. Um, there want we culture, society, media, or government wants to um, kind of deny gender differences, first sex differences, and then you know that influence on on gender development. Mm-hmm. But all biologists and experts in this area are going to clearly identify that there are key sex hormone differences between developing boys and developing girls, right? Is gender as a concept fluid? And is there a socialization process to that? Yes. And no one can deny that there are primary sex differences that impact uh, gender development. So what does that mean? This is something to get into a later podcast. It just basically means that primary sex hormones like alter the way that you behave in this world, testosterone for males, Mm -hmm. other sex hormones for females. So let me just throw it at you, you guys right now as without reading on this subject. I read a paper in preparation for this podcast on how early hormones shape gender development, but without you guys doing any of that research, I've done none recently. I'm I'm a human being walking into this room empty, Empty mind, really. So both of you, be humans. Describe what you view to be primary differences between males and females. Uh, Let's start with males. Males, physically stronger. Females, more emotional. Yeah. Okay, males, 
um, stubborn. I don't know. And males much more aggressive. Okay. Males, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, females much more nurturing, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Like if we talk about kind of the stereotypes yeah. that are portrayed between males and females. Don't guard yourself right yeah. now. And you said males are more aggressive. Correct. Okay. What else? Well, I think males um, tend to be a little bit more closed-minded and shut themselves down. Like they don't listen as well. I think that there's that, uh, they uh, almost like uh, survival, like they have to take care of things. They're problem solvers, problem solvers. All right. So maybe what you're trying to to say that are females are more relational, right? Cooperative, open-minded, care more about the experience of the person they're relating to while males may be more likely to just focus on, is there a problem? How do I solve it? And Yeah, I mean, uh, you look at video games, for example, like males tend to just want to play. There's an objective. I want to do this. I focus on it. I'm not saying that girls don't play video games, but it's certainly a little bit different the way that they'll view that. I see that too. Okay. What, what other differences? I, I, this is more culturally, but uh, a man um, who has multiple relationships with women is almost celebrated. Whereas if it were a female, it's shamed upon and you are, um, you could be considered a slut. Yeah. So that concept of slut shaming yeah. multiple sex partners, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're a, a woman yeah. and, uh, males will be celebrated for it. Girl, yeah. Girls are celebrated through uh, beauty. They're celebrated by being, you know, mm-hmm. they, they have to make up, uh, they put makeup on, uh, men are, Almost, it's it's like a traditionally uh, kind of joke where oh you, you know males don't have to look as good they can just sit there and be slovenly and be like oh well mm-hmm. you know so there's a double standard there maybe okay so that's that's important because we have to get into that today because it's about self worth and value mm-hmm. so women are more likely to tie their value and worth to their physical appearance. Mm-hmm while males are more likely to tie their worth to some form of achievement, status, and money. Okay? Yeah. yeah. You guys agree? I agree I with that. Yep. Okay. What else? I think, I think males... Um, predom- I think males, the way that I view it, we, uh, we like to joke around a lot more. There's, we don't take things as seriously. I don't know how else to say that. We don't take things as seriously. Um, maybe that's just me, but... I always try to find a joke. That I don't. I don't know what you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't get that one. I think that's your personality. Um, sex differences that you notice. You're in a school, Kelly. Sex differences between males and females. I, I, I honestly, a lot of its appearance. A lot of its appearance. I feel like you're leading us. Like there's something you want to talk about, but we're not thinking about. Yeah. It. So why don't you? Why don't you jump into it? Well. I have to lead you because listen, like I'm studying this stuff. Yeah. Obviously, I dedicated a career to this. So my areas of like reading on the development of eating disorders okay. in females has been kind of well developed over the past couple I, of decades. I, have I want to see what you as right, the lay right. person I just got observe. You. And and so one another thing I noticed is that if um if a male questions things uh and stands up for themselves, they're strong. If a female questions things and stands up for herself, she's considered a bitch. Oh, good one. Yes. Yep. Okay, that so, makes sense. Like, so we're, we might be talking about how society shapes behavior. Mm-hmm. All right. So let me kind of just review some of the things that I've thought about in preparation for this podcast that might be really important for us to understanding the rises of depression. In understanding some of the sex differences, whether, whether there is a component that's related to sex hormones, 
combined with societal's response or, or reaction, girls in general, we're speaking generally here, tend to be more relationally focused, cooperative, and seek out the approval of others. Where males may be conditioned, may be the role of testosterone and other factors, are less cooperative within the, within the group, but tend to be rewarded for contribution, uh, might be rewarded for having a strong opinion, leadership. Like there's this protection kind of component to a developing male and traditional masculinity that is certainly related to, you know, testosterone for the mm -hmm. most part. Um, so when we look at society in general, traditionally the role of, of females has been to um, nurture and to support a female, to, to support the development of a family structure, to be able to birth children, right? And there's so much about these traditional gender roles that are tied into behavior, okay? So if, if, if teenage girls are going to be much more relational than teenage boys, and let me go back to my time working in a middle school. This is where I worked with Kelly. One of the things that we developed in the school were just girls groups because we knew it was such a vulnerable developmental period for girls. Why? Couple factors. The development of puberty is a 20% increase in, in body fat for, for female girls. So there's a, a rise in body image problems, right? Why is there body image problems? Well, there's a social comparison component here. So if an ideal body is developed in society, and what is happening concurrently at this time of female body development is puberty is happening for boys, mm -hmm. which now their hormones are going out of control, their emotions, they don't know how to handle it. There's a lot of attention that's directed towards the girl for her developing body in a negative way, right? In a shaming way. So you see, and we're seeing an increase in body dissatisfaction as there's an increase in attention to the body of a developing girl. So when we talk about what you mentioned before around like value and appearance, this is a, this is a factor um, because girls who develop early are at an increased risk of mental health related issues, including disordered eating because they develop early. There's an increased negative attention to their body. So body hate is a factor in this. And what is different now is we're at a, we're at a point in, in society now where, where girls are being um, monetized for their bodies. Only fans, right? Um, pornography, widely available. And TikTok and other social media where you get likes based on how you present your body to the viewer. So you see this, there's more and more and more young girls who are showing their bodies to teenage boys and putting themselves out there. That's a shift in society. Showing their bodies, not just to teenage boys. They're just showing their bodies to right? everyone. Yeah. Right. And then getting rewarded for it, right? This is just strengthening and reinforcing the idea that your value is around what you, about your... You know what you bring to um, to others sexually, right? It's this over sexualization 
of a, of a developmental period that has had a profound shift over the last 25 years. And it has negative mental health effects. So a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girl that um, matures faster than others and uh, gets this attention, they also don't have the ability to understand exactly what they're doing um, emotionally. Like they're putting themselves out there, they're getting this attention. But then when it gets to the point where it's like, um, perverse. They don't understand. Do they understand that what they're doing is wrong? Do they understand that what they're doing is because all they're doing is getting likes. They're getting all these rewards. They're getting all these things for how they look. So, do they realize that at a young age like that? Do you? Th- yeah, they understand. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and but then, I, and the more this I, is normalized I, within a family, the more okay that it is. Like this isn't something that's just unique to teenage girls. Look at adult women. And their role in this there, as well. There is, there's got to be a component of brain development, though, at a that's young what age. I, that's like what you, I was getting that at. We talked about the prefrontal cortex in the past, and that's your rational thinking. Like, you might be, they might be reacting to something quickly, not Imp- thinking about the implications impulse of... Impulse yeah, control. Impulse, yeah. Well, I mean, that's true, right? Teenagers are, are much more impulsive. Yeah. So if you're like, if you're a teenager and you're seeking out that attention... And maybe it's in response to feeling lonely in that particular moment. Yes, you're much more likely to impulsively do it because that part of your brain to predict consequences hasn't, you know, developed. But my point there is it's normalized in culture now, right? It mm-hmm. is, there is a desensitization process that has occurred that girls are now much more willing to be able to present their bodies to on, on public forums. And that has, and what we see is that that has negative health effects. That's ultimately unfulfilling, right? This, this, uh, constant dopamine kind of response, you know, in our brain of getting that light, but they're not going to, they're not going to sense that. Right. Why, why do you keep, why do you keep speaking just, like generally like this? What do you mean? They not would generalizations. Not sense that. I think that when, when girls are on, if they're on TikTok and they're getting all those likes and they're young, they don't see that it's unfulfilling. They see the opposite. But I know where you're kind of going to go. But so yeah, so Kelly, I'm going to call you out today. I, don't, I guess I'm going to guy who's on this podcast who calls everyone out. That's all right. Well, you'll be the you'll be the one building the brand of the victim. I'm going to be the new guy. <laughs> so. Um, so if you yeah, you make that statement. How do you account for these astronomical rises in mental health if it's not affecting them emotionally? Then what is right? Like, and and this is what we're doing here. We're kind of. Um, but that, but that's my point. What I was trying to get at is, I I agree with that. But that's where the mental development comes in. So they're doing it now, and they're getting this is what the, this is what they're getting, and they're getting dopamine level. They don't view it. A fourteen year old, fifteen year old, sixteen year old. You can't have a conversation and say you know what you're doing is actually going to affect you later. It's it, you're, yeah, it's not going to do well. Let's remove the sex component from this in terms of like sending nudes or right. or, or sexualizing your body. I think the more prevalent issue through social media and, and, and teenage girls is you look at the social influencers, those that are just have a significant following, like the Kim Kardashians, like those type of people that have millions of people following them. And then they look at others that are trying the same thing and they're growing this, the likes and the, and the people that um, are following them. I think there's a, a desire to mimic that. So when we talk about like the fish face, 
Like how many times do you walk around the street or the city and you see 15 year old girls walking together, holding their phone up Taking in the air, selfies. doing the fish face thing. And, and there, there has to be a, a, a part of it for somebody who continues to do what others are doing and they don't see their own following or own likes growing where they feel rejected and, and they may look at their own image and start picking out their personal flaws or imperfections that actually make them human and thinking they need to change to be more like the others. Does that make sense? Such a good point, right? When we're talking, this is a period of identity development. Mm -hmm. So during this very vulnerable period, you're trying to determine what can, who are you in this world in relationship to others? How do you, how do, how are you liked? How are you accepted? And in this social media world, if we're seeing this like profound idealization of women who look a certain way, show their bodies in a certain way and become rich off of it, there's a modeling component. Mm -hmm. I, I want to share something because I, I believe that uh, in the school system for elementary kids, they often ask them what they want to be when they grow up. And one of the number one things that is being referred to now, it's no longer fireman, police officer, it's social media influencer is on the list for kids. And to me, that is just ridiculous. It's, it's insane. Um, the fact that that happens to me just shows how much children are on YouTube watching people talk about products or talk about um, things being sold because there's kids that are making like millions of dollars. And mm. it's just, it's crazy. Because social media starts to dig deeper and deeper down into the brainstem and it, it takes over kids' sense of self-worth and identity. Mm -hmm. That's from that... Um, that social dilemma documentary. Oh yeah, which I would I would encourage people yeah, to watch. Encourage it. to watch that I because it's it's this addictive kind of approach, right? Like we we're now the product, and yeah. our attention is the product being sold to so, advertisers. Um, um, I follow business a lot. Um, I love watching CNBC. Um, the little money that I save, I invest it in the stock market, and there's been companies that over the last five to eight years have seen significant growth and it's all based on image and Instagram culture. You have the Ulta beauties, um, which is, uh, if you go to any malls, they have a lot of uh, cosmetics where you can go in, you can try things and that business has grown significantly. And then also align, which is Invisalign. So it's people feel like they need to fix things about themselves that they may feel is different from others or may be an imperfection when it's just really being human. Yeah. I've, I've kind of made these statements in my sessions with clients. I've said, I've never seen anybody who's truly happy, who's focused on themselves mm -hmm. and culture is pushing more females than males to focus deeply on your appearance. And the more you focus on your own appearance, the more imperfection you're going to notice, the more anxiety that you're going to feel. And it creates like, it creates this um, strong self-hate and dissatisfaction with how you present to the world. And this concept of like distorted body image mm -hmm. occurs with the more that we focus in on ourselves. Like the, Good research show, has shown that the more that you look at yourself, your own image will distort itself. I wonder if um, the Cindy Crawford growing up today would look at that mole on her face as something to be removed where, 
you know, 15 years ago, it was her identity and what she, what she celebrated as a beauty mark. I mean, those, the word beauty mark, I don't even know if it exists in today's culture. It's, it's yeah, pointed at and say, do you want to get rid of that? There's a Black Mirror on Netflix. There's a Black Mirror episode with... Uh, I, I love that series. Yeah. It was it was a very um, Bryce, depressing, uh, but... Bryce was, Dallas Howard, who's Ron yeah. Howard's daughter, mm-hmm. plays in this one episode. And in the episode, the premise is that you you basically earn your way in life through social credit. Social credit. Meaning, you, you know what I'm talking about. You yeah. see that one? Yeah. And so it's all about... Now, she just happens to be the female role. I mean, it's everyone in that society. But for her, it's about the way she looks the way that she acts, everything, you have to be perfect. And if you're not, you know, you get rated. And people literally look at you, they're looking down at their phone. And if I don't like you, I'm going to give you a negative rating immediately. It's like a social credit system. And it just, this whole conversation reminds me of that episode with that woman comparing herself and trying to be this perfect caricature of, of beauty mm-hmm. and um, elegance. Uh, it's, we're are we there? Yeah, are it, we well, there? It's a frightening yeah. exaggeration of where we could end. At a young age, going back to that, I, I, I want you to come back and attack me again because I want, <laughs> uh, seriously, I want to go back to that. I'm, I don't know that I'm wording it properly. I'm just curious. These girls are getting attention. Look at Reagan is nine years old. She's nine years old. She was on Roblox. And mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize that people were allowed to talk to her. Uh, normally it's just her friend or her brother that can do it's that. It's like a virtual There world. were people talking to her and she was getting enthralled with this. I It wasn't horrible, but it was probably something. But I'm like, what if somebody got on and started saying, you know, you're really pretty. You know, you're really beautiful. You know, saying these things that would just make her feel good. And it scares the shit out of me mm-hmm. that, that that could happen. Yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's what's happening. There's the status of likes now, right? But they're also fishing for comments. So when Instagram is the, that visual, that photo, which, you know, we all know that with all these filters now, I mean, it's not even how you really look. So, I mean, that feeds into this self-hate and disaster because they have to go look at themselves in the mirror compared to what they're presenting online or what their friends are presenting on, online. And, it, and it, what it does is it presents this unrealistic kind of version of what beauty is. That affects the male brain. It affects the female brain. Like these things are are really powerful. But like when the social world is becoming much more isolated and distant, so like actual face-to-face contact is decreasing and you're living in this virtual world, your social approval is not about like being likable in terms of like being a really good friend, right? Um or a really good person, it now becomes on like how you present visually and physically to the world. And I'll even see it on my daughter's Instagram posts. Like they will take pictures that clearly are, are filtered in, in some particular way. And then there's like a hundred comments. You're beautiful. You're amazing. Oh my God. Right. Like it's, and you're just kind of getting that reinforcement. It's, you know, improve, increasing your social status through the number of likes that you get or the number of followers, followers you have. The consequence of this is an emptiness. Let's like let's talk about what that emptiness feels like. And when I'm sitting on the other end of that that chair, and I'm learning about my my clients, and I'm putting myself into the shoes, 
doing the best that I can. And I don't want to overgeneralize here. I, I kind of jumped on YouTube because you're, you're using too many absolutes. Like almost every female experiences this. And there's not. There's protective factors. And not every girl is experiencing these, these things. But I'm also sensitive to it because of, you know, I have two daughters myself, right? And the number of, uh, of female and women clients that I have over the years is pretty significant. So I don't want to say that it's, it's you know, it, this applies to, to everybody. Um, but there is a, you know, a vulnerability that exists when we're taking about, when we're talking about how females are biologically designed to be social and relational creatures and we're removing them from that ability to do that in a pro-social effective way and it's becoming a digitalized world that's fo- focusing more on appearance. It leads to an emptiness. And what do I mean by an emptiness? It means that the quality of the relationships and the intimacy around it is, is, is no longer deep enough to have that person feel good about who they are. It's more superficial. And we're losing that in society. And I want to be able to have discussions on how to have more fulfilling, deep relationships and that means there has to be an acceptance of the flaws that exist in human nature, how we hurt each other, but also how we, we restore relationships and we repair them. And the most healthy people, in, in my opinion, are the ones who have that acceptance of the struggle that exists to be human, the pain that exists in loss. And the ability to be able to deal with that emotion in an effective way and be able to face and solve problems. Some other things that I think that we have to talk about and how they intersect with mental health problems is girls, females, tend to feel their emotions more intensely than their male counterparts. That's not a judgment. That's just a biological fact. There's likely an evolutionary benefit to being able to experience emotions intensely. One of the things that I even have it on my wall that a client gave me was, you know, a saying that basically, you know, referring to your, your emotions are superpowers. Because I think the way that we relate to our emotions has shifted in society. So if you're a, if you're a developing girl and you're, obviously there's tons of hormonal shifts and changes that occur and you're experiencing your emotions more intensely, if you're judging that to be a symptom of an illness, do you see the consequences of that? The problems of that related to that? It's dramatic, right? You're now viewing what is natural to you to be a symptom of a, of a medical condition. More signs that you're broken. More signs that there is something the matter with you, which is already being reinforced over and over again in culture. And so we're driving our teenage girls into this direction by not normalizing that emotional development and experiencing emotions intensely is a normal and expected part. And our ability to learn how to experience them Mm -hmm. and cope with them is a part of education. And instead the public school system in their own idiocy does no research in this area and continues to support the same ideas that if you're feeling that emotion, I'm going to be scared of it. You could be suffering depression. Let me send you to a doctor Mm -hmm. instead of learning how to normalize it and deal with it. 
right? It's just public education has just been an arm of popular culture. And the, the professionals that are in these settings at this point are, are spewing pop culture nonsense well, they, and have no basic understanding of, of this, the science base of emotions. There will be some sort of a program that they're sold on that they have to do an in-service to everyone for and that they'll purchase it and they'll sit there and go, this is it. And you look at it over the course of the years. Now, I've been in a long time and it's no, the message is no different now than it was 20 years ago and nothing's changed and nothing's changed. Well, that was my experience in public education. When you say the word sold, right? It was another package that, that you needed to present yes. to your staff that year. And listen, it, it's certainly something that is you know, designed to support someone's theories or ideas at that particular time. One of the worsts in, in history is this idea of the self-esteem movement, mm-hmm. right? That became grown into, the, um, into this entire generation and we still see the ramifications of it today, that self-esteem is based on how you feel in a particular moment, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a complete distortion of the actual science. So no one could ever feel bad. So it was a trophy for everybody. You know, we see inflated grades. And it kind of started this entire process of having low tolerance for struggle, which has weakened our resiliency. And it's still the after effects are... are are being demonstrated every day as our kids go to school, scared to death of, of teenage emotions and having no idea how to build resiliency. So, you know, the, the parents that are listening to this podcast or educators or people who are, who are involved in the development of teenagers in general, specifically teenage girls, please allow them to be emotional. Don't drug them for being emotional. Think about the messages that you're sending, especially in such physiological development and hormonal change. That's going to, like, we know that in a premenstrual period, girls are going to experience their emotions more intensely. Let's stop pathologizing it. At this, where I, where I work, I'm seeing a lot of individuals that maybe are medicated and they're almost, um, it's almost like a badge of honor. It's almost like a bad, you know, in some cases where they'll talk about it, not celebrate it, but it's, it's, it's no, kind of, it's, like, ce- it's celebrated. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking, they use the word, um, remove the stigma to make it more, more comfortable to share that they are struggling with something. Thank but, you, Big but, Pharma. Uh, no, I, I am. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sharing like the, the way that I'm seeing it evolve over the last 10 years is destigmatize is now celebrate your mental um, illness. illness. Yeah, illness. and it's- And they it, use the word illness. And they'll, but, but they'll, they'll, they'll say what they're, what the drug that they're on and they kind of just like smile at it. And you're just like, well, okay. I mean, hey, you know, whatever, but that, that just seems strange to me that you're, years ago you wouldn't sit there and say oh yay you know i'm yeah. I'm, I'm this and it's like and, and i'll get better from it yeah, and i'm you, like you no. <laughs> yeah and you're medicating normal yeah. Um, yeah you know ultimately what happens here is population large percentage of people who never one decade ago would be identified with any major mental health condition are now taking these pills as if it's something magic that's going to make them feel good which is a complete lie and obviously what we're seeing is that societal reinforcement of this quote unquote victimization, you know, that victimization culture that is like, I am a victim to my disease disorder. I'm biologically different than you. I'm a depressed person. 
And that depressed person now has social rewards, weirdly, strangely, right? And part of it is that destigmatization like campaign from Big Pharma. Like you can't um, develop a medical intervention for problems of living. You have you can only develop a medical intervention for a medical disease. So you have to create the medical disease first. Mm. And so even though the problems of living are now like depression, anxiety, right? As if they're unique, discrete disorders. And so it also gets you out of things, right? If you can identify with a disorder, you your behavior, if it's, you know, if it's something that's regretful, which every human does, and that's how we learn. Well, now you can justify it being part of your disorder, right? You have a mental illness. So, you know, your behavior, regretful, things you said or things you did are related to your illness, which impairs our ability to learn from the experience, right? Um, And then you get rewarded or you can connect with others who are also feeling the same thing, which tends to be normal variations in mood. And so now you're part of your group in this identity develop. I'm, you know, I'm, I have mental illness and this is socially constructed. You know, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, you know, a clear biological illness. This is a social construction, certainly to serve um, large businesses, predominantly pharmaceutical industry. The education system has bought the packages hook, line, and sinker and kind of discussed the same ideas over and over again. So the educational system is not an, has kind of moved away from like understanding resiliency and coping and has moved completely to the uh, development of a dis- disability culture. The message is very clear to me when I listen to some do not teach kids that, you know, you have to be very careful about what you say. It's like this careful thing. And I'm like, well, if a kid is going through struggle, shouldn't we be teaching him that that's a good thing? Well, it's idea. Not a good thing. Like, like a trigger warning concept. The, Walk on eggshells. Right. Right. Can, yes. Yes. Can't, can't any, these kids can't feel um, anything that's like personal. All right. Or they're going to be triggered and they're going to feel emotion. And then you're going to be responsible for it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the things we touched on earlier was the role of parents um, and the influence they have over their children, especially teenage girls. Um, when you were looking at research, I'm just I'm curious whether or not the the breakdown of the normal family structure of having you know a father a part of a teenage girl's life could be contributing to this rise of uh, of issues. Yeah, there's 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 certain things that um, are indisputable, right? the The family as a protective factor is absolutely indisputable that children do better in a two-family and two-parent home. Um, and when I say two parents, it doesn't necessarily mean the parents have to be male and female. Like, Yeah, but the, the role of, um, I'm using, a, a father has a specific role, a mother has a specific role. You can have two mothers, but they have different roles within that dynamic. Uh, or a grandparent can play that role as well, right? Just somebody to balance out that family structure so it's not just a single parent. I mean, that's my question. You know, a, a, well, a the, child gro- growing up in a single parent household, um, how are those parental dynamics changed when you have one person versus two people? Well, there's economic factors, right? So in, oh, good in, point. Good you know, point. Yeah. when you're a single parent, I mean, much more of your time is going to be outside the home because you have to support that family. So we know that there's economic factors. What you may have said by talking about a father and a, and a mother is the role of gender-based modeling 
and the value and importance of that. Mm-hmm. So what increases risk for females are in situations when they don't have two loving parents, including a loving father. So the loss of a loving male figure and a loving father increases vulnerability to seek out that attention and love elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Usually it's going to incur, occur in the idea of like trying to demand more male attention. So yes, we see absent fathers absolutely influence their daughters. So the father as a role model matters. The mother as a role model matters. And so if we're going to talk about what protective factors are, like what can you do yeah. as, as parents? There's certain things we have to accept right now to be truth. The more screen time, the increased amount of time on that phone in that social media world will correlate directly with an increase in mental health related problems and problems in development, including factors like sleep. For, for boys and both boys, boys and, and girls, girls. Mm-hmm. boys and girls, right? So you know that now your ability to, to limit that tool and to oversee it cannot be understated. It is that important. There should, if I can make one recommendation, never allow your teens to have that phone in their room at night, right? Mm. Like have that phone, take those devices leading up to bedtime, including computer, no exposure to those blue lights, no exposure to the social media world and let them go get sleep because nothing good happens after midnight right? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I'm dealing with teens who are now sleep deprived, dealing with social problems at two o'clock in the morning because there's no respite. Before smartphones, teens had relational problems, Like right? Girls are more relational. The relational bullying that exists with girls is a problem, but there was a respite from it. Like you go to school, you can go home and you might not have to deal with it until the next day. And it might have blown over by then. But like now you're creating more problems. It's nonstop kind of um, having to deal with the relational world mm-hmm. through those digital devices that we, activates. Um, we had a, a moment about a week ago um, and my sister shared a story that, you know, back in the day, the, the issues would be a friend would call you up and you would, they would do three-way calling. And you wouldn't know about that other friend on the phone listening. And that friend would say something to kind of lead you into a discussion about the person listening, almost to set them up. Well, um, I was talking to Roger on the phone and my sister called and I was like, oh, I'm going to pick up. I'm going to merge it. So we, we, we kind of repeated what we did in our youth uh, before social media existed. And, and she kind of pointed out that, you know, nowadays that happens almost instantaneously. Um, if you want, if somebody wanted to spread something or say something about a friend, uh, it gets out there and it gets out there quickly where you wouldn't have even known about that until like the next day when that friend would have said something about you said and you're like, what are you talking about? And then you realize, oh, you were listening. You were there that in, the entire time you were in the house. So th- the fact that we didn't have to grow up in that culture is, geez, it's so satisfying for me. I, I don't know how I could live in today's world. Um, the stupid things that we did, uh, the fact that we don't have to to deal with the repercussions of it, I, I'm I'm grateful, man. It is it is tough out there right now for a teenager, very very tough, no doubt. Yeah. So if we're talking about you know protective factors and what we can do with raising our teenage girls right now, um, 
limiting that social media contact mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. Make making sure that you're involved with what they're posting, what they're doing. Okay, let that be um, a boundary that if they cross it, there's repercussions with your parents. So you better be following their Instagram. You better know what they're doing on TikTok, right? You you have to have access to what they're doing and how they're presenting themselves to the world. But you want to know what the greatest protective factor is? Like, let's assuming that they that they, they come from a loving family, right? Because we know neglect and abuse increases the risks of everything, right? So if, if your parents, if if you don't have parents who are present and are meaningfully involved in the day-to-day of of your teens, obviously all risks increase. But meaningful activities are so important. One of the things that society has done well has been um, greater opportunities for uh, girls in sports, and it's more celebrated in in culture. So, you know, I think like the U.S. women's soccer team, you know, and their success has had a role in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But girls are involved in soccer, softball, wrestling now, uh, you know, gymnastics, swimming, volleyball, field hockey, lacrosse. These are pro-social, cooperative, goal-setting, and it takes time to be really good at it. And you know what? If if you're engaged in sports or other meaningful activities like, you know, the art scene and, and drama and things of that nature, you're out of your head. You're out of that social drama and you're engaging in trying to improve yourself athletically, artistically, whatever that may be. This is an incredible protective factor. It's so important, especially for girls, because they are relational beings that they are out of the sitting in their bedroom with their heads in their phone and their social media, and they're engaging with, with others. So those are like two important things. And listen, like if you're not monitoring their social media use, there are predators out there, right? The predators that exist out there are, are, are trying to reward and praise and attend to your daughters, your sisters, these young vulnerable girls, in ways to get them to feel good and to hook on to not to deal with that loneliness that they might be feeling. And it puts them at greater risk for problems with pornography, with sending nude photos, with engagement with sexual predators. Other protective factors, obviously, and this comes, you know, hand in hand with protecting them from the device is sleep, right? The, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, um, teenagers are getting less sleep nowadays, which is impairing their cognitive function, their ability to learn. It impairs their mood. So what one of the huge problems I have with our current healthcare system is where you treat the symptom and not the cause. So you have like these kids who are on these phones and they're not sleeping. Their mood is obviously impacted, right? They go into the doctor in a 15-minute interview. They just treat the mood with a pharmaceutical, which exacerbates the problem. And you see we, we just, we're, we're stuck in this in this cycle. And one thing that we don't talk about enough is like morality and faith and religious teachings. Um, and it's positive impact on, on culture, right? We can also be critical of how even those teachings can be harmful 
and how abuse can occur within those settings. But there's something that about uh, like a moral code, especially when it comes to protecting our youth and understanding the dangers of early sexual exposure to both males and females, that um, is protective in society. Don't we see that there has kind of been a breakdown of that moral code that exists in society? And it, you know, our parents and families seem to be falling right in line with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, we, I just recently moved back seven months ago now, I think it is, and started going to the, the Catholic church that we went to growing up. And I remember the Catholic church being filled on a Sunday. And I went in there the last two weekends and it's maybe like 10% capacity. It's, uh, it's almost depressing. And, and you got to question the role the Catholic Church played in, in maybe contributing to that. But also, I think it's just the, the family dynamic of removing religion from their lives or doing other things um, that, are, that is, uh, is contributing to that as well. Um, and I know, you know, growing up, that, that Catholic guilt plays a role in maybe some of the decisions you make, especially when you're young and as you get older, um, that might prevent you from doing something that would be impulsive, you know, understanding that there'd be some shame following it. It's important. I mean, religion plays a role in that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, those, the, the morals of the stories, mm-hmm. the things mm-hmm. you could talk about and how fearful maybe you were to make a decision. You, you thought prior to making a decision, even though we were all, we all did kind of stupid things or we were impulsive, you still had this almost like this anchor to, yeah. am I really doing what I'm, is this going to make me, mm-hmm. you know, it's am I going to get in trouble? It's there. Yeah, yeah. it's there. I, I, I don't see that as much here. Yeah. You know? that the development of a conscience and moral decision-making. Yeah. Yep. Right. Like it seems to be pretty important in development. And also when you were young, you didn't want to go to church, you know, your parents forced you. So there's something, there's a component there of, of having to do things you don't want to do and then taking a lesson away from it that lead to that resilience that we talked about in previous episodes, growing up and being a little more, um, you know, just conscious. That's, there's, there's something there. Yeah, fellas, like as we're doing this podcast, one of the things that really stands out to me personally is the complexity of these issues. And for our listening audience to understand where the development of this podcast is going to go. Um, we are at some point going to bring on established experts in these various fields. Right now, we are establishing our niche. We're establishing our kind of cadence here and focusing on the topics that we believe are really important to this time. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of starting to highlight some things. But do you know how much depth we can get into on some of these specific topics? Like just the impact of social media use on body image mm-hmm. and a developing female. That could be a series of episodes just on social media. Right. And there's, and there are people who spend their careers researching these, you know, these very topics. And uh, so, you know, we're kind of like painting with a broad stroke right now, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into, into details of this um, as our listening audience continues to grow and develop. But I hope that this podcast today starts bringing attention to a very critical issue and all the factors that contribute to it. Because if we're gonna, if we're gonna change as a society, if we're gonna protect our children, we're gonna protect our girls, we have to make changes in the way that we raise our, our mm-hmm. daughters, 
communicate to them their personal value. One of the things I've never done as a father um, with my two girls, and I was extremely vigilant to this, is they're never praised for their appearance or their presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one thing I'm, I'm proud of because I know the dangers of it as a psychologist who, who started, started in graduate school. Uh, you know, I was doing research on eating disorders and published in that area. So I know the dangers of it. My girls were always praised for what they brought to the world, whether it's through their athletics, their academic, uh, how they treated others. Um, so those things are like rewarded and reinforced. Their character. It's about personal character and their actions and behaviors. Because if you're going to, if, if your value, if your personal value and your esteem is going to be based on your physical presentation, you'll all, you're, you're walking down a road to feeling horrible about yourself. Yeah. Especially yeah. as you age. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, if that's one of the things that's going to, that, that we don't talk enough is like the developing woman then. You know, their role in the family and in society uh, is it losing reverence, you know, mm-hmm. um, because there's too much domination on like your physical appearance. So we don't, you don't want to peak in life, you know, between the ages of 19 and 26, no. you know, like if you're, that's your own personal value and that's the only way you can achieve love. Yeah. So there's so much that we oh, yeah, you- have to do to change as a society and a culture because the direction we're the path we're walking down is uh, is is a breakdown in um, our own mental health, our own physical health. We're we're kind of like seeing modern society being undermined in many different ways. Yeah, and the solution to your point starts in the household. Don't wait for technology or social media companies to come up with solutions to overcome the things that they're not even really acknowledging uh, exist when they're part of the problem. It really comes down to the household. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.